This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's eLab Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Richard Caperton, a Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs in Oracle's Utility Global Business Unit. Welcome, Richard, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, Chris. Good to be with you. So why don't we just start off with a little discussion about Opower, the company that existed, and then how that got acquired by Oracle. Yeah, so up until August of this year, I was working at Opower that many of your listeners have probably heard of. Opower is an enterprise software company that provided software to utilities to help them better reach their customers and drive energy efficiency outcomes, among other things. In August, we were acquired by Oracle. The biggest change is that Opower had 500 employees, but now I'm one of 136,000. So just a totally different scale of company. What hasn't changed, though, is that we're still doing the same work, still working with utilities and helping them improve their interactions with their customers and ultimately uh, speed the transition to a clean energy economy. So Opower has been collecting an enormous amount of data on how utility customers across the country use grid power and then figuring out interesting things to do with that data for the benefit of both customers and utilities. Some customers may not know that they're even getting Opower services. For example, when I lived in PG&E territory in California, I got a little report every month in the mail from PG&E, separate from my utility bill, which told me how much electricity I used the previous month relative to the previous year and relative to other similar houses in my area. 
Now that information was provided by OPower, but it just said PG&E on the report. So what other kinds of services does OPower provide to customers and utilities? Yeah, that's a good question. That report that you described, that's what we call our home energy report. Uh, It's made up of a few things for the folks who haven't seen one before. It's a three bar chart showing how the recipient compares to their neighbors in energy usage. And it's not just neighbors, it's similar households. We call it neighbors, so it resonates more. And then uh, it also gives people advice on how to use less energy. Those two things, the comparison motivates them, and then the tips tell them what they can do. Those two things combined drive real energy efficiency savings. We send that tool, the paper report, to about 15 million households Wow, really? Yeah, it's a lot. Almost 100 utilities, every region of the country, every type of utility, munis, IOUs, and co-ops, small utilities, and big utilities. It is our flagship product. It's what OPower started with way back in like 2007 with SMUD, the municipal utility in Sacramento. So so it's been a big deal for us, and it will continue to be a big deal for us. We've now augmented that with different types of communications on the same messages. So like emails instead of just paper. We also deliver that information over the web. We build some websites for utilities. So different communication channels. More interesting, maybe, is that after we had been doing that home energy report and what we call behavioral energy efficiency for a few years, we had a client, a utility client, ask if we could do the same type of thing, but focus on specific hours of the year instead of every hour. We call that behavioral demand response. We started doing it with Baltimore Gas and Electric, the large IOU in Baltimore, and we drove real savings during peak hours for them. So we got people engaged during the times when it really mattered to the grid and to the utility, when power was expensive or power was hard to come by. Then what we found is that utilities care about engaging their customers, not just on energy efficiency and on peak time usage, but also when they have a bill coming. People want to like improve the experience around like a new mover when somebody is new to the utility. So we started building tools to support all those experiences. And now uh, what it's come to is building tools that support the whole customer experience with the utility. Wow. Okay. So what we're really doing here is we're just simply using customer education as a way of reducing demand, yeah. both on a sort of a gross basis, on a monthly basis, and on a system peak basis. That's right. So for several years now, there's been a vigorous discussion about the future of utilities, uh, starting, as I recall, with the EPRI report in 2013 about you know, warning about a utility death spiral as customers defect from the grid using things like rooftop solar and on-site storage to provide their own energy, to a bazillion conferences and papers on the utility business model of the future, to piecemeal reforms like California is trying, to the all-out reform initiative that New York is taking now with REV, the Reforming the Energy Vision Initiative. One thing that all of those ideas seems to have in common, however, is that utilities must become more customer-centric and really focus on delivering a lot of specific and dynamic services that customers want, which is really a big change from the past when customers could either have electricity service at a flat rate or not, and that was about the only choice they had. So from your perspective as a provider of some of these advanced utility services, how do you see the conversation evolving on utility business models of the future? 
Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot in there. It's funny talking about all those different programs that you mentioned. And my previous job at a think tank called the Center for American Progress, before I left, I thought maybe I should start doing work on the utility business model and the utility of the future and like talk to some funders about supporting that work. And they quickly told me that there were already more than 20 different projects doing the exact same thing. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, there was quite the cottage industry that just sprung up around that. Yeah, so they didn't need me to do that. Right. Um, But there's a lot of work happening in that space, and there's a lot of not just like think tank work and advocacy work, but there's a lot of real change happening in the utility industry. Let me step back just a little bit. Everybody is familiar with J.D. Power's surveys of utility customers and ranking utilities against each other. What you may not know is that J.D. Power also does an industry ranking where they compare industries to each other. And they recently ranked 17 industries, you know, cars, cable companies, utilities. And the 16th ranked industry was gas utilities. And the 17th ranked was electric utilities. Mm. And it's not because utilities aren't trying. You know, utilities, most of them have a chief customer officer now. So they're spending money on it. They're putting some real energy behind it. But it's just not breaking through. And that's because they're falling behind these other industries that have revolutionized the customer experience in the last five years. Think about, like, your bank. And the fact that 10 years ago, you were going to a teller. Five years ago, you had to go to an ATM to cash a check. Now you take a picture of it. That's a dramatic change. And utilities need to provide comparable services so they can meet customer expectations. And it's super important for them because, like you said, they're competing not just against themselves, but now customers have choices. Customers can use less energy. They can switch to a third-party solar provider, for example, somebody like Solar City. They could switch to a retail energy provider, somebody like Direct Energy, if they're in a competitive state. They could move. That'd be a pretty dramatic action for a residential user. But still, there's a lot of actions they can take if they're not happy with their utility. They complain about it to the Public Utility Commission and make life hard. So a lot that they can do. So utilities are really motivated right now to keep their customers happy and improve that customer experience. When you talk about the utility business model, that feels a little different to me. I think of that as like how utilities make money and and that's going to change too. But the customer stuff is even within the same business model of rate of return regulation and charging a flat per kilowatt hour rate, things have to change Mm -hmm. uh, even in the same business model. I think. What do you think? Well, one thought that's popped up for me here as you were speaking is the role that disruption plays. You know, I think in a lot of the industries that you mentioned a moment ago that have undergone this kind of really fundamental transformational change, in in many cases, it was change that was driven externally by new competitors coming up and just sort of disrupting what had been kind of a staid or a very conventional business. In other cases, it's businesses disrupting themselves, disrupting their old methods in order to, you know, retain an edge and keep attracting customers in a highly competitive environment. You know, I think that's part of where this idea of just being able to take a picture of a check and have it deposited to your account, I think that would be an example of that. Yeah. But I wonder where disruption fits in the utility business model, because You know, it's kind of a strange beast, isn't it, where you have what's considered to be a proper monopoly that's given the license to be a monopoly because it's in the public interest. So it's much harder to disrupt in that sense. 
Yeah, and, and disruption is risky. And right. what regulator wants their utility to engage in that type of risk? And what customer wants their utility to engage in that type of risky behavior? It's really tough, like motivating disruption in an industry like this. And not only that, I mean, when you're getting a regulated rate of return, if you're a vertically integrated utility, what's your motivation to disrupt yourself? You're pretty fat and happy where you are. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if they're totally fat and happy, but they're, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but yeah, it's a good business to be in, in good times. It's a tough business to be in, in tough times. You know, think about the 1970s and utilities going bankrupt or think about the nineties and the introduction of competition or think about today and like the changing environment that utilities have. It's a tough time to be in the utility business and it requires aggressive forward thinking from utilities. We just had the president of Baltimore Gas and Electric at O'Power's office somewhat recently, months ago, just to talk with the employees about his business and what his concerns were, what his motivations were, what his priorities were. Mm -hmm. And Baltimore Gas and Electric just celebrated their 200th birthday, which is unbelievable. They were selling gas back in 1816. Wow. Yeah. So a very old utility. That's got to be one of the oldest businesses in America. Yeah. It's a very old business. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that for 200 years, BGE has been an energy company. And now after 200 years, they need to be a technology company. Hmm. You know, in some ways that's like a catchphrase. Yeah. It seems a little pat. Like, what is he talking about? But in some ways it's real. Like the challenge of the business is not pushing gas through the pipelines anymore. The challenge of the business is keeping customers happy and running the business efficiently and taking advantage of all the new technology that's out there. Mm hmm. At least I, I think that's what he means well, when you well, like well, unpack that a little more. Yeah, what kind of technology do you think he's talking about when he says that? So he's clearly talking about like distributed energy resources, mm-hmm. but I think he's also talking about software technology and technology that no consumer would ever see because it's just helping to run the utility better. So for example, in the old days, when you had a system that was just a power plant and poles and wires and then a user, that system is, sure, it's hard to run, and I shouldn't like discount it, but at the same time, it can run on an analog system, which is engineers, like somebody shoveling coal in the power plant, and then somebody else like making sure that basically shovel the right amount in there and that the power stays on. It's a big system, it's complex, but it's in some ways very straightforward. When you have a much more dynamic system with a lot of distributed resources on the grid, managing that system is beyond the capabilities of an engineer sitting in a control room. You need computers to manage that system for you or with you. And I think that's what he's talking about, too, is like managing the system in a time of significant complexity. Utilities spend huge amounts of money every year on the systems that it takes to track their customers. And as more data comes onto the grid, now that we're doing like 15 minute meter reads, for example, instead of monthly meter reads, and now that customers are more diverse, you get different customers on different rate structures, and utilities want non-utility information. They want like demographic information or behavioral information. So there's just a huge amount of data that they need now, exponentially greater than there used to be. And managing that data will require new technologies that utilities may not have in place today. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember a couple of years ago hearing just horror stories about how there are some utilities out there. And as I recall, they tended to be like smaller munis and that kind of thing but where they were actually still keeping all their customer records on paper. 
This was just a couple years ago. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Like they literally didn't have the data computerized. And when it came to monitoring equipment on their own distribution systems, it was literally just some guy, you know, driving around in a truck old style, you know, looking at stuff. Yeah. Like they didn't have the ability to actually detect faults electronically and figure out where they were and, you know, dispatch people to go look at them and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I I started my career with the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. So yeah, the trade association that represents all the co-ops across the country, like 900 some electric co-ops. Some of them are very big, like Southern Maryland Electric Cooperative has like 200,000 some customers, but many of them are very small. I've been to a co-op that had six employees. And the CEO drives a truck and like strings of wires. Yeah. He's not exactly Tom Fanning. Right. Uh, like, he's like just another utility employee. And those are well-run businesses generally. They serve a, a very important purpose in their community, but they're small businesses mm-hmm. and they don't have huge revenue. They don't have a lot of money to invest in state-of-the-art technologies. Yeah, yeah. So... I think my listeners are well aware of certain kinds of demand response services that are available in some sectors and some parts of the country where utilities can alert customers when grid power demand is high and the cost of generating it is high, which generally results in customers turning down their consumption a bit and shaving a few percent off the grid's load. Now, larger customers like industrial or commercial customers or even residential customers working through an aggregator can receive a payment, possibly from the utility, for this kind of demand response. So what are some of the more interesting demand response projects that you see happening out there these days? Yeah, demand response is changing dramatically. You know, 20 years ago, it was a large CNI customer got on what was called an interruptible rate with a utility, where they just paid a slightly lower price and the utility had the right to turn power off to them. That would come back to bite you every now and then because sometimes the utility did exercise that. I was in college, actually, in Southern California during the California energy crisis, and we had signed, Pomona College had signed a uh, an interruptible rate. And during the energy crisis, like, power went off every day, every afternoon. I guess we still had classes during it. I don't remember. Well, my listeners may not know that I'm also a Pomona alum, but I was there before you were, so I don't recall anything like that <laughs> happening when I was but, there. <laughs> So there, there was this like interruptible load thing. Yeah. And then they got more and more sophisticated. And now there are direct load control devices, what I call DLC or direct load control. And it's where the utility actually installs a switch on your air conditioner or your furnace or your pool pump, anything that uses a lot of energy but can right. be like cycled on and off. Right. And then the utility cycles those things on and off, flips them on and off. And in aggregate, that'll save a lot of energy during peak time. At Oracle, we do something called behavioral demand response that I mentioned earlier, where we don't have any device in the customer's home. We just give them information about what other households are doing and tell them that tomorrow is going to be, or some upcoming day, is going to be a peak day and do your part by saving energy in your house. And then we give them some advice, like change your thermostat setting or run your dishwasher at night instead of in the afternoon. Just that messaging alone and like setting a norm and encouraging people to take action, it reduces consumption by as much as 5%. Hmm. And that's with no price. And then with some utilities, we also have added in a price. So we do it through a peak time rebate where if people reduce their consumption during peak hours, they earn money. Like call it. And the money can be valuable. In some utilities, it's over a dollar per kilowatt hour that they save during wow. peak times. And, you know, that'll come Which up. Which is significant considering that the typical grid power price is like 12 cents a kilowatt hour. 
power. That's right. Yeah. And during those peak times, of course, the power is expensive. So right. it, it's cost effective to pay people that much. And, you know, over the course of a summer, that can add up to like 25 bucks for a household. So it's pretty valuable. When you do that, you can get over 10% savings in a household. So right. there's a lot of a lot of stuff that you can do. I think one of the biggest challenges that utilities have is scaling these programs. So another example is there's programmable thermostats where the utility can help you program your thermostat, but they can also override your thermostat settings remotely as long as it's like internet connected. Those are really valuable. They have a huge impact on peak demand at the households that participate in the program. But getting any more than 1% or 2% or 5% or even 10% of households to participate is really hard. So we need to find ways to scale programs across entire utility customer bases. And I think that's something that utilities are struggling with. It makes opt-out programs really attractive to utilities. So things where you just sign up everybody, like a peak time rebate program, is pretty attractive for that reason. But it also demonstrates the value of marketing and getting customers engaged in those programs. But beyond behavioral load control, I wonder if there isn't also an opportunity for Oracle's data analytics on all these customers to help utilities identify better opportunity for more direct control or opportunities to get customers enrolled in like aggregated demand response programs where you know it's more of an active than a passive kind of demand response. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things we've done to help utilities with that. First is we work with Con Ed in New York. We're doing a demonstration project with them as part of the REV proceeding there. Okay. Have you talked about REV on another yeah. podcast? Yeah. yeah. So um, changing the business model there and utilities offering new products. And one thing that we're doing with Con Ed, it's called the Connected Homes Project, is we are using utility data to target customers for distributed energy resources. Mm -hmm. And then we are also running a marketing platform, so sending communications to customers, letting them know about these other opportunities they have. So identifying customers that are good for a smart thermostat, for example, and also giving those customers information on how they can take advantage of a utility program to get a, a new thermostat. Interesting. So you're helping the utilities basically do customer outreach to get customers interested or involved in programs or tariffs that the utility might offer that would be good for them. That's right. Yeah. And maybe to get even more specific, it's lowering the customer acquisition cost for third-party DER providers as well. So like we work with a solar company as part of this project and, you know, acquiring a solar customer is really expensive, like 2000 bucks per customer. That's right. Yeah. So anything you can do to make that cheaper is good for the company and they're excited to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things in the solar industry that's been long talked about is why the so-called soft costs of solar in the U.S. are so much higher than they are in Germany. And that's one of the reasons is the customer acquisition cost is so much higher. Why is customer acquisition higher in the U.S. than in Germany? Oh, man, that's a big subject. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know? Yeah. Is there a reason? I could could talk to you for half an hour about that. There's a lot of reasons. It's it's, It's just a whole bunch of reasons that are stacked up on top of each other and you know, not least of which being that Germany actually has more or less one unified market for solar. And the U.S., it's more like thousands of markets. So it's very balkanized, you know, and plus Germany had a national feed-in tariff that everyone could participate in. The U.S. has nothing like that, probably never will, some of that kind of stuff. But, you know, what, what you just said kind of brought to mind for me something I just recently learned about that one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is EV grid integration. And 
one of the problems that utilities have in attracting EV customers to use their time of use rates that they might have developed for their EVs is the utilities don't actually know who's got an EV. And the DMV regards that information as private. The DMV can't tell the utility who's got an EV. So somebody needs to step in there and say, we can find this data for you. We can help the utility identify who's got an EV so that they can then do an outreach to them and say, hey, we've got a time of use tariff that's just designed for you. Or are you thinking about buying an EV? If you are, here's what your power bill would look like. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that seems, again, like the kind of thing where OPower could potentially play a role. Totally. Yeah. And there's two different ways to do it. One is like look at the load and do some sort of load disaggregation or like load modeling and see, yep. like, does an EV customer load shape look different from a non-EV customer load shape? That's and- exactly right. And that's one of the things they are trying to do, except that a six kilowatt air conditioner or a 220 amp hot tub could look a lot like an EV too. Uh-huh. So you you could find some signal, but there'd be a lot of noise in there too. Yeah, yeah, so it's not perfect. And then the other thing you can do is look at like what type of customer has a high likelihood of owning an EV. Yeah. And you know, we could speculate on that, but there's also like real research that could be done into who EV customers are. And then you can just figure out who those customers are. At Opower, we built what we call a segmentation and targeting tool where we have over 100 different attributes for each customer at a utility. Hmm. And then you can sort the customers. So if you want to know, like, you know, income level or usage level or household size, like those things are obvious. But there's probably a lot more granular stuff that you could think about, too. Like, do they have a swimming pool? Do they have a hot tub? Right. Uh, If there's some way to know that, like, let's build that in there. And you can get down in pretty small and well-defined groups when you have that many data attributes. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we've discussed at some length in previous episodes of this podcast is the potential for time-varying dynamic electricity rates to help us understand some of the grid challenges of the future. For example, in episode 20, Eric Jumon imagined a little box that might be able to negotiate with the utility in real time on behalf of all the appliances in a building to moderate their demand and save the customer's money under a very dynamic or even a real-time tariff. And in episode 27, Marissa Humman actually suggested the opposite, that utilities will always be able to get the most value from dynamic resources, and so they should control them in the background for the best benefit of the grid, while continuing to charge customers a simple or even a flat rate. And then because the utility can actually ride out the highs and lows of the cost curve with their superior knowledge of the cost of operating the grid. So what's your perspective on that? Do you think there's a future for dynamic, time-varying, or even real-time tariffs? Yeah, so right now, there's so much to unpack there. (laughs) Sorry, it was kind of a long question. (laughs) No, no, it's a good question. It's a good topic. Obviously, we need better pricing on the grid. Without better pricing, the business case for a whole lot of distributed resources doesn't pencil out. Think about storage. Uh, I just read in, I think in GTM, that like 90% of the value proposition of residential storage in Australia is related to price arbitrage because of TOU rates. And if you don't have that 90% of the value in most places in the US which have flat rates, like what's the storage benefit? Right. Like how are we gonna get people to adopt storage if the value isn't there? Right. So you need time of use rates, and that's just one example of like why you need it. You probably need it to signal back to your previous question to EV owners, like when should they be charging their car? You need TOU rates to send that signal. I think the difference in Eric and Melissa's models is about 
who bears the risk for price fluctuation? Is it the utility or is it the customer? And there's no debate that there will be different prices on the grid. And it's sort of like, are they on the utility side of the meter or does the customer side of the meter have some exposure to that as well? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really complicated issue to like square the circle between what Eric said and what Melissa said. Um, yeah, I but, think, but I mean, just more to yeah. the point, never mind what they said. What do you think about the potential for time-varying or even real-time rates as a way of achieving a more optimized grid with a lot of distributed DER and variable type assets on it. Yeah. Do time-varying rates or even real-time rates really help us get there? Are they necessary? Is it better to have the utility just sort of adapt to having all these things on the grid? Yeah. Well, I think there's a a meta question about the value of markets in the grid that we should come back to embedded in that. I do think having price signals that reflect the actual operating state of the grid is going to be really important to getting new technologies out there. There's no doubt about that. Now, that price signal alone is not going to be enough because like these are relatively small costs for customers. You know, your average bill is something like a hundred bucks a month. Like people just don't pay that much attention to their usage and they certainly don't pay attention to their usage in real time. So you need to make it easy for them to understand those rates and make it easy for them to respond or even automated for them to respond. Um, You know, nobody's going to be responding in real time. And I think that gets to Eric's thing about the box. It's like that box should simulate like what an ideal customer would do to optimize their energy use. Mm -hmm. And that sounds believable to me. Now, getting people to put that box in their house, that's a little tough. Getting people to actually like set up their wireless dishwasher, like who wants to have a Wi-Fi enabled dishwasher? But it turns out that's going to need to happen for that box to really work. So there's a lot of challenges around like customer engagement and customer education, I think. Yeah. Well, there's definitely that part. Not only that, there's, you know, a need for telemetry systems that don't really exist. And there's a need for better customer interfaces on, you know, how are they going to control this stuff or how do they even set the parameters under which it could operate? And then you could get down to different levels of thinking about it. Like, okay, you can have an aggregator negotiating with the utility or doing transactions with the utility on behalf of thousands of customers. Or you can have customers doing those kinds of transactions with the utility just on behalf of themselves. Or you can get it all the way down to the device level. And at what level do you need to push that control and that responsiveness in order to really get, I guess, the best benefit out of having, you know, the Internet of Things here in the energy system? Yeah, that's interesting. And that's an actual, like, engineering and modeling question of, like, how granular does the pricing need to be and yeah. how granular do grid operations need to be yeah. you know we go from a system today where it operates based on like on a like a substation level or probably a little more granular than that but right. you know it's not like reaching into everybody's house and controlling appliances at the house right and adding that level of complexity may not deliver i think it's unknown to me how much value that delivers. And then if you could figure out how much value that delivers, you'd have to trade that off against the cost of actually building all that stuff and figure out if it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And then that gets to the point that I was going to say about the markets is you could imagine, and this might be something that like Eric and Melissa would disagree on, is that in Eric's world, there's a market that reaches all the way down to a dishwasher and we will trust the market to optimize the grid. Right. And... 
I think what we would likely find is that it's not that easy and that all those resources are different and it's virtually impossible to write market rules that allow those resources to compete against each other in a real meaningful way and in a liquid way. Mm -hmm. And then you're back to Melissa's model, I think, which is let's just not even pretend to create a market. Let's just give everybody like knock a tenth of a penny off their rate for the right to reach inside their house and then just trust the utility to run the system yeah and assume like they know how to do it the best yeah like that's pretty believable to me that that might be the ideal outcome yeah we even see that at the wholesale level where like it's really hard like pjm struggles to have demand response compete against generation right and those are like pretty comparable things and that's a wholesale level where there's only a few thousand resources in pjm once you like aggregate the dr stuff so it should be easy to fix that problem and if you can't fix it at that scale i think it's going to be really hard to fix it at the scale of distributed resources yeah that makes perfect sense and i think it's a right kind of analog to think about it You know, a critical part of building the smart grid of the future, enabling the kind of stuff we're talking about here, is advanced metering infrastructure, or AMI, which can report detailed customer usage data to utilities in near real time. And I guess about half the country now has these so-called smart meters. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So on the customer side, we're just beginning to see, actually, smart home technology, which can help customers understand how much power their stuff is consuming and even control it to save money at peak times if they're on some kind of a time of use rate. So how do you see these AMI and smart home technologies proceeding? I mean, are they, are they getting deployed quickly enough? Are customers and utilities really able to take advantage of them? And what challenges remain to be overcome? Yeah, I think we need 100% AMI. Mm-hmm. And right now we're at just over 50%. And we need 100% not because we need better meter reading infrastructure. Like in some ways, a smart meter is just a better version of an analog meter. Like that's not super valuable. Where it gets really valuable though is when you take the information from that meter and put it in front of customers and drive outcomes with that data. And if we don't have that data, then we're not gonna get the outcomes that we need, especially for distributed resources. It's gonna be impossible, for example, to send price signals about the time value of a resource if we're metering somebody every month. Right. You know, that, that's just a fundamental disconnect. You yeah. actually need AMI to enable time varying rates. So all this stuff is connected. It's like you need the economic signals from the time varying rate. You need the infrastructure on the technical side of things through the AMI. You need regulatory changes, like actually putting a a time varying rate in place or changing the utility business model. And then you also need stuff like, getting back to what you started talking about, introducing disruption to utilities and figuring out like, why would utilities find it valuable to charge different prices at different times? That's, right. that's somewhat risky. Yeah. And like, how do we compensate them for that risk? So all this stuff is really connected. Yeah, and that kind of leads into a whole other conversation that we probably don't have time for, unfortunately, but just about performance-based regulation and you know how you, how you create a regulatory regime that provides the right signals to utilities that building that kind of stuff is actually worth doing. Because ultimately, the, the notion is that it would give you a more reliable system at a lower cost, and so it would be a benefit to all ratepayers. Yeah. In the old world, where there was only one way to run a utility, it made sense to regulate it based on how much it costs to run that utility. Yeah. 
And now that there are countless different ways to run a utility, and there are all these different resources, and there are different ways for the utility to picture its job, it doesn't make sense to just say, well, it costs you a million dollars to run the utility, we'll give you $100,000 in profit. Right. Like, that's a crazy way of regulating the business. <laughs> and now you get some regulators who have like decided they're going to do something about it and so it's like new york introducing performance-based rate making in some way now it's going to be a slow transition like you certainly need to deal with the risk you're introducing to utilities but it's also really hard to identify and new york has struggled i think to identify what those metrics are that you would reward the utility for because mm-hmm. utilities i think will somewhat justifiably argue that they shouldn't make money based on things that they can't control. Right. So a customer's energy usage, like is that or is that not under a utility's control? Right. Is a really complicated question that that's key to answer here. Yeah, I agree. And then the things that are under their control is like building a better website. Right. But that's not inherently valuable in and of itself. That's just a better website. Yeah. Is that actually delivering customer outcomes and and then those customer outcomes are really hard to measure. Right, right. Wow. Lots of interesting thoughts there. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Richard, for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, Honor to be here. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think and do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Enrollment for the next eLab Accelerator, a boot camp for electricity innovation, is open through January 13th, 2017. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.